Welcome to the Recruitment Flex with Serge and Shelly. I'm Serge. And I'm Shelly. And we talk all things recruitment starting right now. Welcome to another episode of the Recruitment Flex. I'm Shelly Billinghurst and I'm joined by my co-host, Serge. Serge, how have you been post-Christmas? What's going on over there? You know, I've been doing well and it's funny, well, not funny, but you know, we always talk about um, when we talk to our kids or when we were kids of what do you want to do when you grow up? What's your profession? And I always used to say I wanted to be a vet because I loved animals. Me too. Get out. Are you serious? Really? So did and, and I. I was like, I, re- I got my first dog when I was um, seven years old. And I swear, I was so in love with that dog. I wanted to be a vet and I was going to save animals. So you were too. I, I was too. And I realized that I missed my calling because I've spent so much on vet bills in the last week that I'm like, man, that's, oh. that's the racket to be in. Oh, um, you're so right. I know. And I think it's I, been the same with you. I like that. It has. Yeah. It has. You know, when we rescued a cat, Emerson, a couple of years ago, and we knew he had some eye issues. But did you know that there there's vets that specialize in ophthalmology? Oh, yeah. They, yeah. All yeah. So but. he sees an ophthalmologist. So I have cat already drops. Talked, like, oh, my God. Anyway, I've so already talked to my five year old and my about being a vet. About being <laughs> That's vet. where the money is ingrained. I'm like, this is what you need to do because daddy needs to retire and be taken care of by my yeah. dad. Anyways, uh, aside our vets in our career, oh, yeah, it's I'm not too man. late. Uh, I can still be a vet, <laughs> we can change careers. It's getting laid up there. But how about we talk about something that we're a little bit more familiar with? Let's talk about <laughs> HR and recruitment. So we have two special guests. How about you introduce our first guest and I'll introduce the second one. Yes, yes. So it is my pleasure to introduce Mark Stelsner. And so Mark, we met previously when we were together on a panel for a for another HR webinar. Um, Mark is the founder and managing principal at IAHR, and he comes to us from the most wonderful city of Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome to the show, Mark. Hey, thanks, guys. Great to be with you today, and uh, happy day from Nashville. Yeah. Question for you. Do you like country music? (laughs) Is this a secret? Is this being recorded? Because I actually don't. I find it depressing, to be honest with you. It's all about loss. Um, but uh, but I found my way. I've, I've been exposed to a lot of different music. I've been here about three years now, almost to the day. And uh, I think the city's warming up to me just like I'm warming up to it. But uh, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm learning. I'm, I'm coming along. You know, um, I, we had Tim Sacken on the show. We spent like 20 minutes talking about rap music. Uh, <laughs> I can talk about country music because there's two musics that I like, like two uh, genres, and one of them is is rap, like 90s rap, because that's when I grew up, and the other is 90s country. Like, I'm the biggest Dark Brooks fan in the world, in a sense, so um, Nashville is the place to be, so eventually you'll get there. When you said two music genres, I thought you were going to say country and western, at which one? And western. I'm really impressed. <laughs> What's the difference? Oh, no, I'm with you. I can't, I can't listen to that crap. I just can't. It, no, I, no, no, can't listen to that crap. Well, I get depressed. I, oh my God, I get sad. I yes, carry on, search. Yeah. So uh, when we approached Mark to join our show, he asked us to, um, if we had ever met Mary and if uh, she'd be a good uh, guest. And I'm like, and it took me a minute, Mary. Uh, I had to look you up and realize I've been following you on LinkedIn for years and on Twitter and reading you on eerie.net. And I'm like, that Mary Faulkner? Yeah, yeah, I know Mary. Well, I, I know of Mary. So it's a pleasure to finally meet you. So Mary Faulkner is um, principal at IAHR as well. She's a writer on eerie.net. And you've got your own blog, right, Mary? I do that I write on embarrassingly infrequently lately. So I don't know if I can really say I have a blog anymore, but there's a website called Surviving Leadership if you want to look at it. (laughs) I I did take a look at it and uh, I saw you were number 101 when it came to the top influencers uh, right uh, after Mark. Is that right? 
You just yes, yeah. I was. I was. I'm. I'm the. I'm the secret influencer behind the scene. How <laughs> much of an influencer I am? You can't even see me. <laughs> exactly. So you're in Colorado. Uh, mm-hmm. What is the what music do you listen to in Colorado? <laughs> everything. Um, I think a lot of people assume country. I am in the Mark club of, I hate country music, but John Denver is universally loved. So do not diss John Denver is all I'm saying. Is John Denver from Colorado? Is that like, no, but he, he had a place up in Aspen and he loves Colorado. So then I thought like Denver, Denver, you know, yeah, he took his name from us. So. There you go. Love it. <laughs> I'm sure Rocky Mountain High has a whole new meaning, Mary, right? So. All the, yeah, yeah, let's talk about all those jokes that came out when they legalized marijuana. No doubt. <laughs> no <laughs> doubt. No <laughs> doubt. I missed that by a few years. So. Perfect. Well, let's, let's talk gonna, about some recruitment. So, Shelly, yes. you start us off. Well, so, I, you know, I'm going to start with you, Mary. Um, I would love to hear um, your accidental career path into HR was it an accident (laughs) or was this like I am born for this (laughs) everything's an accident so I always tell people I forced got my way into HR um my dream was to be a stunt car driver that's what I wanted to be you wanted to be vets I wanted to be a stunt car driver then I was going to be an astronaut but I get incredibly uh, motion sick um (laughs) I was going to be a physicist and then I hit linear algebra and then, no, intro to complex variables. And then <laughs> I was going to be a teacher and somehow managed to find my way through to HR through a failed MBA. So I was about a third of the way through an MBA and decided I hated it and took a stats course. And I'm like, oh, this is fun. And that got me into instructional design and OD and, and, and process improvement oh, and everything. And that's how I ended up in HR through no, wow. through no fault of my own. <laughs> the driver... So tell me more about the stunt car driver because yeah, I listen I've never heard to, that one before. <laughs> I watched one of your disrupt HR and you mentioned the stunt car driver. And the reason you want to be a stunt car driver is Smokey and the Bandit, which is one of my favorite movies growing up. So <laughs> why didn't you not pursue that? That's like a dream job. Who could not want that job? Oh, you can do stunt car driving on the side. So we, uh, my husband and I have an unhealthy love of all types of fast cars. So uh, he currently, I'm okay, this is gonna sound like a humble bracket. I'm sorry, but it was used. So don't worry about it. But we have an, an Audi R8. And so that goes nice and fast. But you know, in the past, we've done like, we've done track days, we do autocross when we can. So where you do like a little um, course on a, on a parking lot and everything. So the dream is alive. Just it's a little less expensive and dangerous. <laughs> and, and the reason that was my cousin's actually a stunt car driver <gasps> in no. California. He's been his career his whole life. And uh, longer story, and I won't go through it, but we actually broke a world record with him. Uh, it was like with ATVs that I was part of. And he, he does all these types of stuff. So when I heard stunt car driver, I thought, that's amazing. That's cool. Yeah, totally want to do it. It's awesome. How about you, Mark? How yeah. did you get into HR? Oh my gosh! A, a similar journey to Mary. I actually I studied um, I studied aerospace in college. I interned at NASA. I was on an astronaut track, and um, and then I went down. And this was not the you know not what we see today, right? I wish I would have stuck to it. No offense to my HR colleagues, um, because today you know the great space race, the journey to Mars, all that's super intriguing. There were no jobs. I met just super intelligent, well prepared highly dedicated, mission-oriented astronauts, and um, none of them were being allowed into space. So there was no journey there. So I had to figure out something else to do. Because I have a face for radio, I did voice acting for a little while. I'm making finger quotes, voice acting. <laughs> um, so I was I was the voice of Southwest oh, Airlines and Greyhound and MetLife for a number of years. And, oh, um, and then it was just time, it's time to work. I put myself through school. So when I got out of the university, I I found a job. And like everything, I took a job that was beyond my expertise. And one of my first jobs was call centers for Hewlett Packard in Silicon Valley, thousand seat call centers and trying to figure out efficiency and um, the people strategies and how technology will impact performance. And I accidentally began my HR career shortly thereafter. So here I am many decades later and uh, have the good graces of leading our merry band of misfits here at IA. So it's been, it's been quite a ride. 
Well, tell me the story behind IA. Yeah, so um, it's funny. I, I think some of the most powerful lessons that most people learn, and certainly I learned, is 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 things not to do. So IA is a direct reaction to all of the horrible experiences I had as a leader in multi-billion-dollar organizations, even working for other consultancies. So the premise of IA is all the things that we weren't going to be. Um, we weren't going to create codependence, right? We were going to focus on knowledge transfer so our clients didn't need us for very long. We were going to focus on fixed fee. Why? Because we want people to, to invite us to everything. We don't want them to keep a clock. And did that was that quarter hour, did that really generate enough value to warrant that rate card? We wanted to be outcome focused, right? I wanted to, to, to focus more on not staff augmentation, but actually producing things that teach people meaningful lessons that allow them to sustain um, these outcomes and, and own these outcomes. You know, it's, uh, I wanted to stand next to or behind my clients, not in front of my clients. And if you've met a consultant, which you probably have, and if you've met a traditional management consultant, which I'm, I'm sorry to say you probably have as well, they are the opposite of all of those things. It's about penetrate and radiate. It's get your claws in forever. It's build the highest hourly rate. It's be the smartest person in the room. It's stand and, you know, claw your way to the board so they know you. And, and it just perpetuates, frankly, just a, a, a horrible reaction and, and, a, and a, a system that I abhor. So when I had the chance, right, to, to start on my own and to, to do it right, I wanted to do it right and I wanted to do it well. And I wanted to be really intentional about what we stand for. And we're about to celebrate our 15-year anniversary uh, at the end of this right. month. So fifth, that's Happy anniversary. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. I looked I looked exactly like this when I started, as you can imagine. I'm aged so, a day. No, not a day. Not a day. Thank you, Mary. But, um, you know, we've got this great team. It's been a decade and a half. I, I feel like, as Mary can attest, I feel like we're just getting started in so many ways. Mm. So, Another thing is we reinvent ourselves every year. I wanted a place where we looked at what we do and how we do it. And we acknowledged that the world evolves. Like as people, we evolve. Mary and I were briefing with an assessment uh, vendor the other day that talked about, you know, we're all fixed and firm and you are who you are. And by the time you're in your mid twenties, you're fully formed. I'm like, I don't know a fully formed 26 year old. I don't know a fully formed 50 year old. It's like, we have to acknowledge that you know, what's happened in recent days has shaken everybody and caused everybody to change. Yeah. And yeah. and as an organization, like how do we adjust to the state of the market and how do we lead by example and how do we how do we get to where we think is the right place for our industry to go? And but but I will tell you guys it's not easy. You have to be intentional. Mm -hmm. All the incentives are to be lazy, to replicate bad work and to build the highest rate um, as long as you possibly can without getting caught. So it, it, it takes a, a different point of view, I think, to, to get where you're going. And you all, you'll probably experience that in your own businesses, I imagine. Yeah. Well, I can say I cringed when you talked about these, um, whatever psychometric assessments or evaluations that say you fit into a box. Um, you know, when I hear that, like that makes me cringe. To think that that any human being could be um, a fixed being at 26, 36, or 86. Um, it, it's just, it's absurd. It's absurd. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I think uh, it, it really is such a breath of fresh air to hear that yeah. and to have somebody push back other than me, like being the lone wolf saying, like, that stuff is all garbage. You know, like, it's maybe helpful. We get a common vernacular, but... Do we have to label everybody? Yeah. You know, what's hard, what's hard, and Mary, I know you can, Mary, Mary, you and I have talked about this before. Like, it's pretty easy to figure out what that system's trying to get from you, and then if you're mm -hmm. really paying attention, it's possible to game the system. I've never yeah. taken a set, an assessment from any provider and gotten the same results twice, and I can't tell how much of that is because I've changed or I'm just getting smarter about you know, what kind of outcome I would like that to represent about me. So it's it's an imperfect science. I appreciate the value. I will say the value that mm -hmm. assessments do provide, yeah. but I would like to, I'd like our industry maybe to acknowledge a little bit more forcefully that it's an evolution and, and things change constantly, perhaps more frequently than than the data would otherwise suggest. Mary, anything you yeah. want to Yeah. Yeah. And just, I mean, be be careful of using it to say this person will be good in X type of job. Oh, I, thank you. I, I'm just, it, yeah. it drives me nuts when I see organizations using these assessments as a knockout or as yeah. a, as a funnel. Or, well, or well like let's that. talk about that, Mary, because 
if we look at when we think about psychometric, and I think Shelly has strong views on this, I have strong views. Do we, we, we lead I really do. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, so yes. We, we lead recruitment, like I lead a recruitment team, and uh, that's been my career path. And in that sense, um, there's always been discussions, and I know applying for different roles in the past, the first thing I get is an hour assessment before talking to anyone. Yep. Talk about a bad candidate experience. So if you're going to do psychometric, and I think there's there's different perspective, different thoughts of how effective it is, but if you're going to do it, where in the recruitment process would you put it, Mary? Oh, it depends Nowhere. on how you want to use it. So, well, so first of all, if, you, if you're going to use any kind of psychometric, don't you dare use it as a knockout. That's my number one thing. Don't say, uh, based on your personality style, this is, you, you can't work here. If you're going to, the best I've seen it used is uh, if you take the assessment and then it's used for a follow-up interview to say, oh, okay, here are potential fits. Here are some rubs. Let's talk about what your approach might be. But it's, it's you know, truly is a data point. Where I see assessments most effectively used for are if they have been fully validated for the role, if there has been internal and external validation and a confirmatory job analysis done to say, yes, we know that if they score X on this, but they've almost always been things around spatial reasoning, yeah. potentially quant uh, quantitative, things that are tied to the actual activities of the job and not, if I see one more person tell me that you have to have a certain score on a disc to be a good salesperson, I might slap them because- Thank you. I just, so I always use myself. So I'll follow up that slap. Yeah. So the <laughs> point is, so Mark says his is always different and it's the same thing. Like if, once you've taken a few psychometric, you know exactly what they're looking for. You know what the constructs are. It's so easy to game, but I always come out as very like this person should never work with other human beings. It, 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 I, <laughs> I interviewed at a, I mean, I am as I, as you can be on any kind of scale. I am a, don't give me group work. Don't, you know, just put me in a room and let me do it and it'll be fine type when I do this, but look at the work I do. Everything I do is with people. Everything I do is in a, in a group setting. It's because I find the puzzle and the challenge more interesting and than any kind of concern that I would have about working with people. But if you were to look just at my assessment, I would never get a job ever. I actually, in, in one organization where I worked, the, the hiring manager. So we had the, we had the interview. I took the assessments. Then we did the interview with one of, of one of the uh, assessment analysts and Jerry was her name. And she just was like, yeah, I'm really shocked that you are having um, a good social interaction with anyone based on these results. <laughs> I was like, well, that's why you just don't use assessments to decide whether or not somebody can do a job. <laughs> Well, and you mentioned quite a bit there as far as what organizations have to be prepared mm. if they're going to leverage psychometric. And being in recruitment for a long time, I can guarantee you most recs that are coming to recruiters are not that thought of. And there's definitely no. not that back in research to see how that data correlates with what the role is. So basically what you're saying is don't use friggin' assessments, psychometric assessments in your initial process unless that you're following up as a secondary interview to dig deeper. Is, am I getting that right? Yeah, I, there's just too much to put you at risk with it. Yeah. And there's just, again, there are, there are plenty of assessments out there that you can use that will measure skill yeah. or, mis, or measure that ability yeah. to do the job itself. Use those. There, you do you really need to know that somebody has daddy issues? No, you don't. <laughs> it's not really relevant. So don't oh ask the goodness. question. <laughs> so I, I'm gonna switch gears a little bit. Then this is something I'm pretty passionate about because it's I think a massive challenge in the recruitment industry, but I think in organizations across the board is is pay transparency uh and i think there's a lot of hesitations from senior leaders from managers to actually share what they pay for a particular role and i've seen in some cases it's basically dictated by the candidates be like this is what i'm looking for and then they're knocked out if it's too low or too high or whatever the case is um and putting that if you look at google for jobs and other even indeed they're starting to put a premium on companies that are putting the pay rates. Uh, and what I saw that was really interesting then when I realized you're in Colorado, Colorado is one of the first place that really puts uh, legislation behind it that employers must advertise their pay rates 
and their benefits, which uh, I think is amazing. Mary, I'll start with you. What's your overall thought on uh, paid transparency? And do you foresee this really changing in the next little while where we'll see pretty much all the jobs advertised will have a pay rate in there? Yeah, I so I am all for it. I've, I've always said, if you can put your pay range, put your pay range on it. What What's the harm? You'll hear from some organizations that say, well, it's, you know, it's competitive advantage, what have you. But I mean, you're an entry level position and there's minimum wage. You go ahead and put your pay ranges. Uh, when I ran an, uh, a recruiting team and we did actual A-B testing to say, let's put the same posting up, one with rating, with ranges, one without it. What kind of response do we get? We got more and better qualified candidates when we had the range up. It was a better process. They knew better what to expect. So I love the idea of it. Where I'm concerned about on it on the legislative side of it is how are you going to legislate it to the effect where it's actually impacting good pay practices? And what I mean by that, so if you look specifically to the Colorado law, you just have to put what you think you might pay the role. Companies are allowed to pay less than or more than as long as the range was a quote, good faith estimate. So you're not really promoting good pay practices on the back end. You're not saying, do you have pay skills? Do you have ranges? Is it tied to the market? Do you have a pay philosophy? So I worry that with the legislative side of things, it's a great first step. Don't get me wrong. Everybody put your pay ranges up there. But how much, how much effort are companies going to put into trying to game it as opposed to actually just doing the right thing? So Mark, what's the silver bullet in this case? How do we get to the point? Because I, I think the overall goal is, is to create equality as far as how much men, women are getting paid, the more if it's out there, it kind of causes to have that discussion. But is there a silver bullet when it comes to compensation, transparency, when it comes to organizations? What's your overall thoughts there? Well, I mean, the answer is no. I, I don't think there is. But but I think if you're intentional, it's like anything. If you're intentional about, as Mary was describing, the purpose of it, right? If, if, if pay transparency will lead to greater equity, um, and greater inclusion, then then absolutely it's worth it's worth pursuing. I think what's going to make this even more complex, we're 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 dealing with really large, complex companies and the work that we do every day. And one of one of our large global high tech clients is 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 really working diligently on how to bring this notion to life. But concurrently, they're also recognizing that a person doesn't occupy a single role. So if you think about the jobs you all have had, right, you may you may be in a job, in a role, fulfill the job description. But the reality is you're probably part of four different teams. You're probably partially or fractionally allocated to those four different teams that they themselves may geographically be quite dispersed in terms of how they effectuate work. And so when we think about dynamic teams and we think about skills and we think about job descriptions, the question really is whether a job description even exists in the future. And if a job description doesn't exist in the future, then how do we actually define pay rates and pay ranges? How do we hyper-localize? Do we based on, is it based on the location of the employee? Which as we now know, as a result of COVID, employees are scattered, right? Rightfully so, have, have, been, have had a lot more flexibility than having to be geographically centered, which means the ability to define a pay range is much more complex, much likely to be outsourced or co-sourced to third-party providers. So we have a diverse population that's geographically spread. We have the acknowledgement that the skills and work that you actually do are no longer singular role focused with some rare exception. So in this dynamic world of work, how do we think about pay? Like, I, I think that's frankly the more, not the more interesting, but equally interesting portion of this conversation is, are we, is everyone really a contingent worker? We just haven't called it that because with, with most employment being at will, right? Everybody is in effect a contingent worker. We just don't think about it in that lens. So if we wanna be really clear about it, let's not only be clear about pay transparency, but let's be clear about the fact that the role you occupy is three roles and the role will be split into the following teams and the teams will be assembled in the following way and they will exist for this long and then you'll be assembled again and again and again and again into projects and deliverables and outcomes and constructs that the job description is an imperfect instrument to illustrate. And when we embrace that, then we can start to deconstruct and reconstruct all the attributes, including pay, that really give us a sense of equity and inclusion and diversity, which I think is a good, it's not the only catalyst for pay transparency, it's a great catalyst for pay transparency. But I, my fear is over the next couple of years, based on the work that we're doing, it's actually gonna be more challenging to really 
put pen to paper and really identify what is equity, even comparable people doing comparable work because of all the factors that I've just described. Yeah, and to tie into that skills piece too, skills come in and out of, of demand. fad, you know, yeah, like yeah. there's different demands for it. So maybe, you know, in the early days of computer programming, anybody who could program a simple command was in huge demand and they were getting major salaries. Now it's commoditized. So do you want to lock somebody into a job description and pay them this high range when all of a sudden the skill set isn't necessarily as in demand anymore, but this other skill set's more important. You know, we think about it from a, think about how a movie's made and these, these teams come in and out of a movie and there's the, the pre-visualization people and then there's the maquettes and then there's the people who actually do the computer. All those people are coming in and out of one big project and their pay is dependent on at what stage is the project in, how current is the technology, how current is their skill set. It's very difficult. Most companies, and I would almost say all companies, are not in a place to be able to manage that or even think through it from a, a, a pay or, or planning perspective. So it's just going to get more and more complex, but the average worker might actually appreciate it because those little incremental skills that you get on the way, now all skills truly are transferable as opposed to this big transferable skill set that you claim there is when you're trying to change a career. Mm. In reality, it, it's you've just added a lot of complexity, and rightfully so, to exactly a, a massive challenge. And I know some listeners are probably listening to this, be like, "Holy fuck, where do I start?" Like, no. and I, I don't <laughs> I'm know. Now. Just okay, go no, be I'm a scared. vet. Just go be a vet. Don't be an HR. <laughs> that might be easier. Yeah. Yeah. In reality, what advice, Mary? What advice would you give an HR leader, uh, uh, CHRO, as far as where should they start? to be able to have these discussions. Wow, that's, that's, I mean, I think a lot of it is just let go of the old framework, be willing to rethink work entirely and be willing to push back on this, this age old, well, this is the job description. It's the same job description that we've had for 15 years. And we'll just change a couple words now. And then, oh no, let's use the point factor system to figure out the comp. And there you go, we're within 50th percentile and you just plug it into a computer. You need to get more agile thinkers into HR and you need to get more um, agile thinkers into business in general. I mean, businesses are doing it today. That's why they push back on all you recruiters about your hiring levels because they're telling you, I can't get this person with the skill set unless you go beyond your pay range. Yeah. So listen to what they're saying and, and just be open to that flexibility. I would add, Mary, if I may, the the it also starts with a more holistic awareness of how this all connects to the world of work. Um, You know, out of necessity and sometimes out of design, HR has isolated itself into these functions, right? These specialty functions across talent and performance and comp and succession and leadership and rewards and the list goes on and on. But a lot of the work that we do is just how do you hold up an unseeable instrument to paint this picture of the linkages and the interdependencies among and between these processes. When you make that one decision in isolation from that COE, right, who is well-intentioned, who is an expert in their field, but doesn't understand the upstream or downstream implications to the entire ecosystem, that's where that's where you get to break points. So a lot of it is just holding up a reflective surface to say, do you realize how shitty and inappropriate and non-functional um, and non-transparent, right? Your processes really are. And and Shell, you brought up earlier how horrible of a candidate or employee experience it is because you're thinking about this experience in the context of how HR is structured, yeah. not in the context of the flow of work or how work is really done or how careers or lives really exist. And, and we just have to, we have to step like way, way back in order to see that. And frankly, I think a lot of it comes from you you're more empathetic if you've been through it recently. Like if you've been with the same organization for a really long time, you haven't had to look for a job. You haven't had to go after that dream job only to realize when you're in your 14th interview that your pay expectations are completely out of line with theirs, you know, Mm -hmm. for, for better or for worse. And we could have saved everybody a lot of pain and time and effort if we were just really clear up front about what we were looking for and what we could afford. Um, you know, it's, it sounds so logical and it sounds so simple, but it starts with just a high level of self-awareness, which unfortunately I think a lot of organizations really lack. Yeah, it's true. It is true. Um, so you touched on something here that I, I, it's like connecting the dots for me here, Mark, because um, you know 
I, I did watch your, you and Mary had done your YouTube predictions on there were your YouTube channel, where <laughs> yeah. I think your son, Jack. We were just supporting Jack's. We were supporting oh Jack's. Oh my God, was, oh my was, God was that funny. But do you know, the reality was like, no matter what you asked, the eight ball was kind of like, well, do you know what? There's a probably a pretty good chance that that is going to come true. Yeah. Um, but I think you twigged on something that I would love to see. Um, or hear a, just a little bit more in a 2021 prediction. And that is the whole notion that workforce, if done well, it really is contingent, right? Like, I, and I love the analogy you gave Mary about how, you know, on a movie scene, everything moves through. So, you know, the, the whole idea of looking at your workforce as contingent, um, is, is that a prediction? Like, is that, is that something you, yeah. you're seeing in these Big corporations. Oh, yes. right. Did you put right. that flag in the sand there, Mark? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, 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 okay, you heard it here first. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I think, I think, I think, in reality, it kind of is. It's funny, like we, you know, even our some of our manufacturing clients and prospects. We're talking to one of the largest manufacturers in the world right now about blowing up the HR operating model completely and getting rid of anything but talent. And when we talked about this notion, right, of a, a more fluid or dynamic workforce where effectively everybody, but maybe the leadership team is, is contingent, they really struggled at first because when you think about manufacturing, you think about fixed and firm positions. But when you think about manufacturing a line, if you've ever been in a manufacturing facility, or if you can even, how it's made, if you've ever watched how it's made or any of those shows, you realize that the line, the line is put together and the line is produced for a particular work product and an outcome. And then the line deconstructs and reconstructs. That's exactly what we're talking about, right? And the line may run, you may produce the same product for three months or three years, but the line is still dynamic. You may take a resource in the line and you may replace it with a robot. You may take a robot in a line and you may surround it with a human or multiple humans, right? You may use your supply chain around the world. But when you really step way back, all work is dynamic right? All scheduling is dynamic. All shifts are dynamic. All people are dynamic. And yes, you have certain products and services and deliverables that you want everybody to produce. It just feels different. Like when you're an employee, when you get that offer and, you, and you're an employee, there's a sense of, it's funny, I'll call it, it's cognitive dissonance. There's a sense of temporary permanency. It's like, this is a permanent job and I'm now stable until I choose to choose a different job, right? Like we all, we celebrate it once over. But the reality is, you know, a month from now, the world could change and you could be terminated. And it's no harm, no foul, right? It's, no, it's, it's not meant to be anyone's fault. It's quote unquote, just business. It's very personal for the individual. But if we were just more overt about the fact that the, the decades where, you know, I'm, it's paternal and I'm gonna be with this organization, they're gonna take care of me. It's their obligation. And my obligation is to give my all. That's just not, a realistic sentiment, I think, for much of the world these days. So yeah, Shelly, I'm 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 pretty much all in. The legislation isn't ready, the systems aren't ready, like we're we're not there yet. But if we really look at how work's performed today, basically all work is dynamic, all work is contingent. Mary, anything you'd add? Yeah, the, so the challenge with the con the word contingent, like in the mm -hmm. States, it's really scary because that means I don't have insurance. I don't have any kind of the benefits that I need. I don't have that safety net because the U.S. is not built that way. Whereas in other countries, it's a lot easier because there is a, a nationalized medicine or there's a nationalized network to make sure that if you're out of work, you have some support. So using the term contingent in the U.S. has a different connotation, I think, than, than other countries might have. So when we talk about contingent, I think we... I, exactly to the points that Mark are making. Everybody's dynamic, everybody's at will, unless you're on a contract, maybe you're in a union, but there's still a way to get rid of you if you're in a union too. So there's all these things that they, it has all this connotation, but you're still working in that world where at any given time we can change your job. Yeah, we hired you for this, but I mean, let's be honest, how many of you have ever been hired for a job and it was the job that was posted? Never. I mean, it changes the day you walk in, right? So so I think it's just, maybe we just need to change the semantics and get everybody on board. I don't know. Yeah, I love that idea. I absolutely love that idea because the other part of this is the guilt, you know? So I go into a job and I'm like, this is not as advertised, but hey, giddy up, let's get her done. And then two years later, um, you're, you're, you've done it and you're like, okay, moving on. 
And there's so much guilt and negativity around changing jobs when in fact I was, I completed what I was, the purpose I was hired for. Mm. And, and that's good. Like, great. Like, and unless they're big enough to, to move you around kind of like that whole dynamic concept. So um, just let us know uh, when you're going to blow up HR. (laughs) (laughs) We're working on it. (laughs) I'd, I'd like to have a whole episode discussing tying employment and health insurance together and how crazy that is to me and maybe that's because we're canadian but i i just can't fathom that and uh, i manage uh, a big portion of my team is in the u.s and a lot of always managing canadian teams and now managing a, a u.s team some of the questions that come up during um layoffs during covid and it really opened my eyes uh, mm-hmm. to really a dire situation for a lot of people uh, that safety net is just not there. So there's got to be a bit better, bigger model than tying employment to your health insurance. But I think that's a whole episode, so we won't go too much in that <laughs> one. <Yeah. laughs> uh, but it's one that I'm really passionate about now that I understand it. And I can't, mm-hmm. in reality, I never really understand the ramifications of losing a job uh, in the U.S. until this year. So it, it does make an impact. So let's talk. So I did watch the same, uh, the Jack's doing the, and your predictions, but I want to talk and I want to focus on what, and I, and I hate bringing this up because everyone's talking about the trends for 2021. And as we saw in 2020, like if you, all your predictions started 2020, well, they were all blown up really quickly and none of it happened and the world changed. So, and we don't know what's going to happen this year. Like uh, there's a lot of movement in the U S obviously with storming the Capitol, a new president coming in. We have no clue what's going to happen uh, in a lot of ways, but in, in reality, if we look at the trends of what's happening in recruitment, here are some that we're seeing and COVID accelerated it and what's going on accelerated as well. A lot of organizations are having a lot of difficulties with even something that's pretty basic as virtual interviewing and onboarding, virtual onboarding. Um, Mary, what's your thoughts there? Is this something that we're going to keep seeing and why is it so challenging? Uh, I, I just don't get it. Well, yes, I think you're going to see uh, virtual onboarding. It, it just needs to be embraced. It was already starting long before COVID happened as uh, teams became more and more remote and you realize that, you know, we don't all have to be in the office at the same time, or you might have people who never set foot at corporate headquarters because all of their work is done in the field. So why make them make the 10 hour drive, right? Yeah. So, and I think a lot of organizations struggle with it for a few reasons, um, just based on what I'm hearing too, is they haven't really sat down and said, this is what onboarding is. These are the tasks that need to be completed. Here's where those tasks live, what systems they live in and who really needs to do them. Because they haven't done that and they've just kind of assumed, well, they'll be on site and we'll just figure it out that day. So because they're not on site now, they're really being forced to be thoughtful about, well, when does this actually need to to happen? How far in advance does it have to happen and who needs to be involved? The other thing that you are, are seeing with the struggle is that infrastructures in a lot of organizations are just terrible. Yeah. yeah, there might be an ATS. Yeah, there might be an HCM. They might or not, they may or may not talk to each other. And nobody talked to IT about how do you get procurement for an for a laptop or to get the profile set up. And we forgot to tell IT that person was coming. And oh shoot, we forgot about security badges. Do we need that? So there's that aspect of it. But then when you even think about interviewing, I mean, I think about my last organization where I worked, a good 60 to 70% of the workforce, they were in the field. They were not in an office. They worked out of a truck. So you're asking these guys who are great at what they do to figure out how to do video interviewing from a truck and with employees whose only job really is going to be come in and dig a ditch, which is very important work for the, for the work that we did, doesn't really require you to be able to do a video interview. And yet that's becoming one of the the obstacles to getting them into the job. So there needs to be a way of figuring out how do you train everybody up? How do you make sure everybody has what they need? And maybe let go a little bit of a video anyway, and just do some, just do some phone interviews then just figure out what works. Everybody just jumped on the video bandwagon without thinking about the infrastructure that's needed to do video interviews. I mean, most people, out there, their primary source of, of, of internet is their phone. That doesn't necessarily have the bandwidth that they need. So it, it's just the, the lack of thinking that could ever be something else is, is really what struck people, I think. Mark, what would you add? Well, 
or sorry, Serge, go ahead. <laughs> I, I thought you brought in some really good points and one that I often forget because we've been, my company, we've been virtually onboarding for the longest amount of time. It's really smooth, virtual interviewing, but we're in the tech sector. So mm-hmm. there is, there's just that propensity to, they, they know how to do this. It's never a challenge, but I, I'm actually going to switch gears to you, Mark, because you mentioned something as far as a lot more people are working remotely. A lot more people are, are just not in the areas of where the job is. And we're seeing that across the board, but we're seeing some interesting things happen with that. So we're seeing the, I guess, the migration out of Silicon Valley in the tech sector as an example. A lot of people are, are going back to, they're going to live in Mississippi because the cost of living is way less they can do the same job facebook basically put it in there that well you're going to make more i uh, you're going to make less sorry my apologies uh, i'm actually in disagree i'm in agreement with that and we had discussion with me and shelly if you're going to be in a market that's less competitive the costs are lower i'm okay with facebook saying you should pay less i know that's controversial but give me your sense on that mark what's your thought am i completely off base there it, it, the the answer is probably somewhere in the middle. So I'm one of those. I've lived in downtown San Francisco before I moved to Nashville. So I'm a I'm a sample of one, right? But I have c- complete flexibility where I can live. I run my own organization. I'm I'm an anomaly to the conversation. What what I find difficult is, let's say you you did start in the valley, and let's say you decide to move to Idaho or Mississippi or Indiana or some other place that's got a lower cost of living. The philosophical question as an industry that we need to address and as organizational leaders is, is are we paying people based on their life choices or are we paying based on the value of the job? Um, so, so if Facebook as a headquartered organization in Silicon Valley has priced all of their jobs to Silicon Valley, then that's Facebook's choice. Um, and if I was hired into the job to produce that outcome, and because I've chosen, right, I've chosen a lifestyle, the pros and cons, right, that come from moving to a bigger city, to a smaller city, et cetera, that shouldn't be punitive, right? I'm still producing the same work product. I'm still producing the same outcome. Um, if the organization wants to say, in fact, by not coming into the office, I'm willing to pay you more, I think that's a more logical conversation. So in other words, I don't have to maintain infrastructure for you, right? And that is, the bathrooms won't be used as often, right? The coffee maker and the coffee machines, the cafeteria, the lights, the electricity, even the badge that Mary talked about in onboarding, I might not need one. You know why? Because I may not ever come to Silicon Valley to Facebook's headquarters. It may not be required. And if it is, there's probably a cheaper and more meaningful way for it to do it. So I'm almost of the opposite mindset, which is value the work regardless of location. Um, there was an organization many years ago coming out of Best Buy called the Results Only Work Environment. Do you remember this row? Mm-hmm. And the initiative yeah. was pay people based on results, right? Not And if I can do it in 10 hours versus 40 hours, who really gives a shit? I'm of that mindset. You know, if level, if, if it's not something that's based on hourly attendance and you can produce work product, what's priced to the job and the value, let's not price to the geo. Um, and let's give people the freedom of flexibility to make themselves happy, to get closer to their family, to move to it because they like to run, to move closer to the mountains. I, I just don't think it needs to be punitive, honestly. I think it should be incented. <laughs> yeah, well, and, Go ahead, Mary. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, let's flip it around, Serge. So great. You're going to pay them based on where they're located. Are you now biasing against people who live in New York or who live in That's right. in San Francisco? And because you're like, well, I can hire people cheaper who happen to live in Montana, so we're just going to suddenly only hire people who live in Montana. So well, that's happening right now, too. though. Like it's it happening is. right now uh, that a lot of companies are being biased, and when you're looking for talent, especially in the tech sector, they're looking in Montana for that raw diamond in the rough that uh, mm-hmm. they can pay maybe 20, 30 percent less and get the same outcomes of someone in Silicon Valley. Right. Which is why I'm with Mark. I mean, pay, what is the job worth to you? What is the work yeah. worth to you? And base it on that. Yeah. And now we've yeah. come full circle. And we're back to pay transparency, right? <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> Look what we did. Yeah. We did it all. So, yeah. <laughs> We, we saw other trends in recruitment uh, happen in 2020. I, I guess COVID accelerated a lot of the trends, like when we talk about the automation uh, and obviously with Black Lives Matters and equality, uh, diversity and inclusion has become a much larger conversation, even though it should have been a much larger conversation, 15, 20, as long as there's been 
business as long as there's been people. But in 2021, if you had to name one, and I'll ask each of you, if you had to name one thing that's really going to shake up the recruitment world, what do you think it is? Mark, I'll start with you. Boy, um, my first instinct is is radical transparency, honestly, and, and just courage. Like, I, I think mm-hmm. just being more real and owning the process, the approach, where you are, um, you know, I, I'm not even going to land on candidate experience because it's the whole life cycle, you know, own the fact that your EVP is aspirational, right? That people that work at the company don't believe the EVP that you said and just call it aspirational. This is who we, who we want to be. We'd like you to join and help get us there. Um, you know, we work with a lot of organizations that have so many challenges. One of our, our, our newer clients is a, a German based, very large organization that we're about to sign with and their CHRO got fired because of diversity, equity, and inclusion issues. But when, if you were to look at their website and you were to look at their talent acquisition processes, this would be a place you would run to immediately. But if you were inside like we are becoming and you would look at, and you would look at who they really are, it's embarrassing. Like the dissonance between who they claim to be and who they are is, is unbelievable. And if they were on the phone, they would admit it. If they were in, in this recording, they would stand up and admit as much. That's the problem I have. So my prediction for 2021 is that the market is sick of this bullshit and that effectively courageous leaders will step up and own the realities of what it means to work with and for these organizations. And guess what? Those who do will be rewarded. Ben and Jerry's, Patagonia, right? Like if you think about the brands, that have just been relentless in their belief system and been very true to who they are, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You're gonna get more people that believe in your value systems if you're clear and you stand up in these hard, like really impossibly difficult moments and you own the work that's yet to be done. Not in, not in a glad-handed, not in a let's quote, quote MLK because it's MLK day every year. But as I read yesterday, someone brought up you know, what are you doing the other 364 days a year? Like, let's just be really, really hyper transparent. And that's what I'm hoping, maybe it's more, less of a prediction and more of a wish surge for, for this year. That's what I'd hope to see in 2021. Mary, what would you say? So all of that. Well, and you have to, you have to be aligned. I think too many organizations look to hiring to fix their issues well, we're just not hiring the right people. Well, fine, you're hiring the new people and then you bring them into an organization that's still crap and that still has horrible processes and still rewards the wrong behavior. So that's never going to work out for you. Um, I think just on the tactical side with recruiting, I think companies are really struggling right now to understand how much hiring can we do and how much hiring should we do. There, it just hasn't stabilized enough for a lot of organizations to feel comfortable to staff back up. So some organizations did the layoffs on mass at the very beginning of the pandemic. And they're like, let's figure out how much we can get by on. And so, I mean, in some ways it's really reminiscent of the 2008, 2009 recession of we're just gonna strap everybody back and they're just all gonna be really grateful they still have a job and they're not gonna complain about the work we're asking them to do. What I'm hoping is that recruiting stands up and says, listen, your turnover is this, this is what we're seeing in the market. Why not just hire a few more people and let everybody be healthy? and let everybody have a good relationship with work and let everybody not have to work 60 hours a week and just be grateful for the fact that they have a crappy paying job with no benefits. Mm. So, you know, it, it ties into that candor piece, but it's really, do they have the transparency into what the business needs to do? Do Can they understand what staffing levels need to be? It's, I mean, so many recruiters I know who are great at their jobs, they aren't working right now because companies are like, no, we're just not going to hire for a while, but but as soon as they need to hire, it's going to be this insane, let's just hire anybody with a pulse. So hopefully they figure out just that planning piece of it and, and do it smart. Yeah, I think there's a discrepancy in the industry. This is where the skill, um, there's a skill mismatch in the market right now, because we're seeing that in some markets or some verticals, some they, they can't hire enough. Uh, it's been as busy as ever. And then we have all these people that are unemployed that just the skill just doesn't match what is needed in the market. So I think that's going to come to a reckoning. So love mm-hmm. both of your, I think you're both bang on. I think we're going to see some progress on on both your, your thoughts there. I don't think 2021 will fix anything. I think it'll just keep the conversation going on that end. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. So how about if anyone is trying to find um, Mark Stelsner, where can they find you, Mark? Oh my gosh. That's a secret question here in Nashville. No, uh, <laughs> no. I mean, if you, go, me. <laughs> if you, if you start at ia-hr.com, you can find all of us. You can find our team. You can find our work. You can link to us personally and professionally. You can find a little bit more about our quirky backgrounds in our bios, uh, but that's a great jumping off point. We're obviously on Twitter as well, um, LinkedIn. So stalk us through any medium and we'd love to hear from you. And frankly, I'd love to hear from people that disagree with what we've talked about as well. So I'd encourage your listeners to reach out, connect, engage, engage with one another and engage in conversations. I've really enjoyed the time with you all today. So thank you for that. Yeah. So same goes with you, Mary. That's just look, look you up on ia-hr.com. Mm-hmm. And it's got all of our Twitter contact information. It's got our LinkedIn cool. information, all of that. Cool. cool. I well, have to I, follow you, Mark. Uh, Mary, I've been following you. You're pretty prolific on Twitter, but Mark. No, uh, I never. T- what is this tweeting of which you speak? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, I, I tell you, we probably could have spoke for another hour just on Um, some of the topics that you brought up. And I love the fact that you invite um, disagreement because I think that was one of the foundational things for Serge and I um, in starting the podcast is that we don't always have to agree, you know? And so it's okay to not agree, but let's talk about it. So, So thank you for leaving that invitation open and thank you so much for joining us today. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert, Warren Buffett, once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.